episode of History in Conversation, a podcast produced by the Institute of Historical Research. I'm Liam Cunningham. In this series, we feature conversations with historians, writers, and activists, examining how we can best engage with and understand the past. In this episode, recorded in March last year, IHR director Professor Joe Fox speaks with women's rights activist and writer Helen Pankhurst. Helen is the granddaughter of suffragette leader Sylvia Pankhurst, and in this interview, she explains how her family history, her work in international development, and her passion for equality led her to write her book, Deeds Not Words, The Story of Women's Rights, Then and Now. She also discusses how she has used her personal experiences to analyze and illuminate the past, the challenges and opportunities facing women's rights activists today, and her advice to young feminists around the world. Well, Helen Pankhurst, welcome to the Institute of Historical Research. It's a great privilege to have you here today uh, to talk about your new book, Deeds Not Words, on women's rights then and now. Helen, can I ask you when you first became passionate about women's rights? Was it embedded in your heritage? (laughs) Um, Passionate is interesting because that is what it is really, isn't it? I am passionate about it. I think it was a gradual awareness of how relevant my surname and my heritage was to the issue and how important it continued to be. So, you know, when you put those both together and you are a woman and you see the issues that are still so all pervasive, and I've traveled a lot and I've seen that it's not just a problem in one country. I think put all of that together and the passion increases and grows over time. Um, And so, yeah, it's defined really uh, a lot of what I've done subsequently. Are the uh, the issues different as you travel or is there a lot of you know there are a lot of universal issues that women face so the thing i love about it is that uh there are differences and commonalities and there is nobody no place that solved it all and no place where everything is absolutely horrific with you know unremittingly and i think that means that you need to think about things you need to unite there needs to be solidarity around addressing the issues Um, a long-term view is required also because some places that think they've sold it then find that you know things can go backwards as well as forwards Um, and a lot of my work around international development is feels has felt a little more unidirectional you know there's a sense that development is about uh, progress and that some countries have got there further and for example the south or africa or ethiopia which is where i've spent a lot of my time Mm. um, is in need of support development assistance and all the rest of it and that one way slightly paternalistic relationship of development of aid totally doesn't exist when you start looking at feminism and women's rights because there we're in it all together and we can support each other and find solutions and I prefer that relationship. Do you think that solidarity is there? Hmm, lovely questions. Um, Yes, more and more so, but also for every woman that stands up and declares herself to be a feminist or for every man who stands up and understands the need and feels like a feminist, there are so many, both women and men, who either don't understand what that term is and feel threatened by it or um, want to hold on to to tradition. So it really is those who want to move forward with the idea of equal rights and diversity and allowing people to be people versus those who like the hierarchies and the traditions of the past and want to uh, retain those. And there are many of them that remain. Mm. 
can I take you to the book? Because the book is incredibly wide in its range and scope. And what challenges did you face when <laughs> writing a book that covered so much yeah. ground? I mean, part of me wondered whether I was being, you know, completely mad in trying to do it. And, you know, should I have just focused on the suffrage legacy or should I just look at politics or um, look at cultural manifestations of inequality? But women's lives are interconnected on all these issues. And my own personal journey is partly about that link to the past. And also the only reason I'm writing it is not just as a social historian, I'm writing it as an activist who believes that we can make a difference. And therefore, I'm interested in where we go from now. So I just felt I had to put all of those together. And to some extent, it feels like quite a heavy book because there are substantive chapters, there are weighty chapters, but I've also looked at ways to try and lift it and to find ways of summarizing things so that we can continue on that journey. And I love the interconnections. I think they're really interesting things that can be said about the interconnections between women's experiences of, as a woman in politics versus in their home space versus in the cultural spheres, experiences of violence, etc. So it's the whole that's interesting. So you just spoke about the book as a personal journey in part, and it's very striking in the book that you inject your own personal journey into it. Now, historians have always felt <laughs> uncomfortable with the notion of, of bringing the personal into their analysis or their writing of a particular historical um, analysis. And I, I just wonder whether um, you think that historians should be bolder in injecting the personal into what they write. I think people are interested in the personal. You know, they're really, they're fundamentally interested in the links between the personal and the global, the individual and the structural. So here you have somebody whose heritage is relevant to the story, to why she's writing the book. And I think if I didn't do it, I'd be doing people a disservice. And the other really interesting thing in that is that I think people expect me, therefore, to have a very militant, strident voice. And it's nothing but, you know, it's, it's not like that at all. It's really a very measured voice that I have. What I hope is that the statistics and more importantly, actually, people's anecdotes. I mean, I love the book because of these anecdotes from women and girls of all sorts of backgrounds. And that's the lifeblood of the book. And I'm hoping it's those stories with my, you know, sometimes slightly sarky comment or sometimes uh, really kind of cool, you know, reflective and sometimes slightly angry. You know, all of that meshes together to tell a story um, where my voice also kind of carries through to the end as well. Yeah. Although the end, actually, the last um, chapter, the, the epilogue, is only the voice of other people. It's, it's what they want to see happen between now, 2018 and 2028, the anniversary of Equal Franchise. And that's a beautiful end to the book, isn't it? And I think that captures one of your main approaches, which is to prioritise women's voice within your your analysis. Was that a conscious choice you made to foreground women's voice as a source in their own right? Absolutely. I mean, I really felt that I wanted to do that. And, um, you know, hundreds of uh, women and girls that I've interviewed and I, and I, I really, I it's whenever I do these talks, a lot of it is actually the, some of my favorite quotes in the books. I think they're just, but people find the most interesting ways. And sometimes it's just the language, just the words that they use. And sometimes it's their experiences that I think shines through. Yeah. And you leave the final judgment to them. Absolutely. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I think that um, what that brings through, what that does is it 
so having created an arc of the different um, chapters, the last one just kind of echoes back. So there are echoes through what women think needs to change in the political sphere, through women of all sorts of backgrounds, what women think needs to change in the economic and the personal around violence against women, um, around uh, culture. And then it ends actually with some youngsters who are now around 11, so who will be around 21 in 10 years time and what their ambitions are. So um, that is the voice of um, not just a social historian. And I don't mean that diminutively. I just mean that that my objective and, and my interests in um, doing this is also what the readers will want to do with it. And I almost, I, I was thinking just the other day that maybe I should have left a line at the end so that people could add their own objectives about what they would like to see happen by 2028. Yeah. Yeah, so that the book is actually something where they're, they're really actively engaging in it and they write down so that they can look at it in 10 years time and say, well, that's what I hoped and it's happened or it's not happened. What is your key <laughs> objective for 2028? So mine is that we all engage. Mine is that right now it feels like social norms are changing. There's something happening, both positive and negative. The, the positive is all this calling out of inequality and prejudice and wanting a better world in which we all have a stake. Um, the negative are those, and I'm just calling them dinosaurs, I'm not even giving them a name, but those dinosaurs throughout different countries that are pushing us back. So my hope is that in this interplay between these two forces that is going on, that the one that calls for these differences and that allows people to breathe will, mm. will um, win out. Um, and, and for me, it's about social norms. It's about changing all those ingrained attitudes mm. that continue to discriminate. And I, I think that, that that means we're all responsible and even the smallest act can make a difference. Yeah. It's not something that we can wait for the powers that be to change. It's something that we all have responsibility for. So you covered a lot of ground in the book. If you could choose one of the developments that has been most significant in advancing women's rights over the period you cover... What would it be? I can't choose one. <laughs> I can't choose one. Um, I think in each area there's been a significant uh, change. Um, but I'll tell you what, I feel and I know that this is a false um, situation because we're in the moments. Um, but I do really believe that there were moments that uh, 1918 and all the work to 1918 were significant moments and we talk about waves and I don't like waves because of all the reasons why you know waves go backwards and how do you define where it starts and where it ends and so on but there was definitely something a moment then there have been a few other moments over time and you know the equal pay um, issue knowing full well that it didn't achieve the end goal um, and a number of things you know the women's liberation movement changed some things and so on it feels that right now something is changing and for me that's not a single issue it's not a single um actor or um uh, or, or factor but it's across the board women saying enough is enough we have to change this enough structures supporting that pay gap rep uh, reporting for example um legislation around um, some areas of uh equality um but fundamentally it's about we our society saying we can do better, all of us, men, women, we can do better by being supportive of each other and rethinking this. So I, I just think that right now, 2018, let, let's make it happen. And the challenges? <laughs> um, 
The challenges are um, those that want it to go backwards, those that um, are, have a lot of power, uh, the mutual uh, linkages between them, the uh, apathy, um, uh, all the, in every single sector, you know, environmental concerns, technological concerns of our reliance on technology and the dangers of if that all disrupts and everything we do now is so determined and so facilitated and so on. But um, I would say the danger is that we don't seize the moment that in 10 years time or 100 years time, the generations that come will say there was something happening, but, but you know, they let go, they didn't follow through. And the analogy I'd usually use at this point is one from the book, which is Mitch uh, Egan, and she has the elastic band uh, analogy where she says, you know, a lot of times people push, they, they pull on the elastic bands, so a feminist pull, and they think that they've got there and they let go, they let go and it pings back. So I think we're at one, one, that, one of those moments where things have changed, but we can't afford to let go. You, you ended the book by looking 10 years from now, what if you look a hundred years from now? Is it possible to do that? Um, I, I, th I it, it is, but I don't want to because I think ten years is a good span where we can actually um, focus and make a difference. I don't think we can think in terms of hundred years time. It's put it this way: I think it's our responsibility to use these ten years so that in a hundred years time, you know, two generations down, they'll be saying we did as well with our opportunity as mm. um, our bearers did with theirs in leading up to 1918. And if there's one thing that you could say to young women becoming interested in feminism, what would it be? It would be um, really believe that you can do anything and that it's up to you to determine the limits of that and challenge those that say, say you can't do this because you're a woman. Uh, or you can't do this because you're black, or you can't do this because of all the other reasons why uh, women are not allowed to shine. Um, and also, I feel that, you know, having said, believe in yourself and get on with it, I'd also say challenge these social norms that say that, you know, you have to wear uh, makeup, you have to wear high heels, you have to um, excel at this, that and the other. There's so many pressures that are put to bear, put onto women right now, young girls in particular, where they feel that they have to um, be perfect in so many things and, and including the, 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 the way that they look and the, the whole eating uh, worries and all the rest of it. So I think it's, it's challenging and saying don't go for all of these things that ask you to be ideal, but really identify what you want to do with your life and get on with it and, um, and, and, and enjoy life and make a difference. It's an interesting balance there. Helen Pankhurst, thank you very much for coming to speak at the IHR. Thank Real you. pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to History in Conversation. Please subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Find updates on our website, history.ac.uk. You can also follow us on Twitter at IHR underscore history and on Facebook and Instagram too.